Judd Apatow, thank you for coming to my humble little home. Um, Welcome to Two Guys in Black Shirts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, would you describe this place as garage sale or more National Geographic gift shop? You know, this is how I want to live. This is like uh, how I would be if my wife would let me. You know, I have tons of stuff. I always say it's not hoarding if all your shit is awesome. <laughs> right? That's my life philosophy. You know, exactly. I want a place for my cassettes. And my CDs. I want my vinyl and my books. Like, I, I love it. Do you still have a, a lot of that stuff, or is it yeah. all in storage? Or, or are you the kind of person that gives your books away? No, I don't give anything away. I I, I have trouble throwing out T-shirts. Yeah, like I I because every T-shirt's like an era or a memory. So yeah, I'll have from like, like old comedy club T-shirts and stuff. Weird T-shirts of like the original Comedy Channel. The hot channel. <laughs> like, I can't throw up my hot channel. It doesn't even exist anymore. This is a great t-shirt. Yeah, I have, I have trouble throwing stuff out. It really is like losing memories because I don't have a great memory. So I like things like photographs and physical objects and audio because I think I always feel like, oh, everything is, is slipping away. I do too. And, you know, forever I've, I've always, I highlight my books when I mm -hmm. read them. So yeah. it's always great to refresh myself on a book all i have to do is pull it off the shelf yeah and i can read the highlights like i yeah. did with sick in the head before yeah. uh the last few days before we came in i do that with uh self-help books but then i like open up a book that i highlighted 10 years ago and i could see like what my problems were based on what i highlighted you ever think oh, i solved yeah. that one yeah why do i hate myself oh why did i write that <laughs> 10 years ago and they're like well, i still hate myself i didn't solve this problem so you really are, in, you're a, a voracious consumer of self-help self oh, books? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, <clears throat> I'm trying to reduce it. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I always think I'm going to find like one simple idea. And that's what I've been trying to do lately. Like, can I reduce all self-help to like two paragraphs or two sentences? What would that be? Well, lately it's uh, groundlessness. I like all these Buddhist books about groundlessness that all your pain comes from trying to make things solid, trying to define things. And so it's all about like dropping the storyline and just being open. Like if you have an opinion on something, you're already closed in some way to experiencing it. And, and the idea that you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable, that life is constantly changing, most of life is suffering in some way. You know, my, my therapist always says, life is suffering and you soldier on regardless. And to just be in that space where that's okay. Buddha thought that our possessions led to our sufferings. Yeah. So by that um, theology, I'll never be happy because- He didn't mean this. <laughs> he didn't get to see this. You don't get this sitting under a tree <laughs> for a year. <laughs> well, I remember years ago, I did uh, this forum. You ever mm -hmm. hear of the forum? The forum, which is like Est's. Right? It was one of those like. I mean, like, I did it like 30 years ago when I lived here because yeah. a girlfriend I dated at the time did it. It was a little pyramid scheme, the forum. Was it really? Because you had to bring other people into yes. it. Yes. And so yes. it was. And that uh, was the thing I didn't like about it. And yeah. that's where they lost me. Well, I think that's where they lost everyone because it's like, it's like those things where you have to sell like the pants. So you sell your pants, but then you have to get eight other people. To also sell pants is a documentary. It was a weird thing because at, like, at the end of it, they would. This is the most important day of your life, and they would have people would call their parents or whoever family mm. members to fly out at yeah. the last minute with no advanced booking. Yeah, 
to be there on this final day where they would get up and the, the whoever had done the class would go, you know, and I've made this declaration to be a better person and the, I needed you here. And it was like, really? You had your mom fly across country? For, you couldn't have like told her on the phone? Mom, now you have to pay a hundred bucks to take this class and, now, and you got to get six more people to yeah. join this class or I'm fucked. I know it's funny because there's usually a core of a good idea in there, you know, with all these things like Scientology, like they're they're based on some old Dale Carnegie speech or, you know, some Buddhist idea that at some point it turns into money or, it, you know, and, and I'm sure just all religions in some way. It's like, all right, but how much money are you, are you going to give us? That's what I like about Buddhism is it doesn't seem like anyone's getting rich on Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not out actively trying to convert people. Well, a lot of the Buddhist monks, like if you go to Thailand, they're just in the street and they're just... They eat what people will give them. You know? Yeah, and you, know, and you see them in Hong Kong, like you see real Buddhist monks in, in Thailand, but in Hong Kong, uh, there's like a lot of people that dress up as yeah. Buddhist monks and it's a scam. Yeah. And they tell you that um, a real monk wouldn't be begging for money. Yeah. You see them in front of like nightclubs yeah. and stuff. Those aren't like the... Nightclub Buddhist trouble. <laughs> nightclub Buddhists. But then there's the Buddhists in like, uh, is it a Myanmar? Myanmar. Myanmar. That's at the hotel of the country. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but they, you know, they're violent Buddhists, you know, who attack oh, right. the Muslims. Like, so, you know, there's, there's a dark side to every, every religion. But I like the core idea. They screwed it up for all Buddhists because that yeah. could be the example of, you know, the one religion that's right, not violent. And then, yeah. Then they... The well, those people the rule. did. Yeah, there's always a little little break-off group. We're the violent <laughs> Buddhists. We're the Buddhists who will kill you. Uh, but uh, but I do like the basic idea of just letting go, just surrender. It doesn't totally work for me. I, I wish it did completely, but it, it gets me part of but, the But, you know, you always have nine million projects going on. Mm -hmm. So how is it possible for you to, like, surrender and live in the moment and relax for a minute if, if yeah. you know oh, I've got this deadline and then four other movie projects I'm working on. Well, that's the struggle, is why do anything? You know, that, that, that's the question. You know, what is the point of any of it? And so I have to constantly think, you know, am I doing this as an ego trip? Am I doing this, you know, to constantly seek some sort of credibility to get approval? You know, is it all just a fight against low self-esteem? Is it a fight against death? Is it like, what? what's the reason to work at all in the creative arts? And uh, you know, the pure reason- To leave your mark? Yeah, I mean, yeah. all we have to leave yeah. after we're dead is the yeah. art that we leave behind. That's what I've- And is that, a, is that ego to feel the need to do that? Or maybe the pure way to think about it is, um, you know, it's, a, it's a, an expression of my life and my ideas and things I'm interested in. And I hope it does some good for someone else. I hope it inspires someone else or gives somebody a moment of joy in, in some way. And that's kind of it. And to not be so obsessed on uh, the world conquest aspect of it. You know, like when you hear about musicians or movie stars and they just have to be number one in the world or they, they have to win that award to try not to be doing it for that reason. That's why stand-up's fun, because you get up, you have this, you know, interaction with a group of people, and it's just for that moment, and it's beautiful. Hopefully it went well. Sometimes it's awesome when it didn't go well, and then it just dissipates. And, and it's gone, except maybe in the, 
in their hearts and minds in some way. And you could think of a movie like that or a documentary or a TV show in the same way. Like, here's a little offering. I hope it touched you. I hope it does something for you. And it's not really about making the world love you in some way. You're just trying to say something to people. Well, you think about like Charlie Chaplin movies are over 100 years old and they're still mm -hmm. making people laugh. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's harder for, you know, how much comedy lasts and is still yeah. relevant sure. over uh, a period of time. Uh, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about, about comedy and uh, the 14-year-old the comedy nerd in me is, mm -hmm. uh, is in heaven right now. Yeah. But I, I want to start by, uh, I, I want to be completely honest with mm -hmm. you. You know, I've seen you many times at the comedy store since I moved here seven years ago. And you told me a few mm -hmm. times um, th that you liked my podcast mm -hmm. and you wanted to do it. And so I'm thrilled yeah. you're, you're finally here uh, and we're doing this. But to be honest with you, I thought you were bullshitting me. <laughs> I thought this is just some Hollywood guy and he's just, I mean, not that you're a Hollywood yeah. guy because you're in a different pantheon because we're in the same tribe. Uh, we're comedians, you know? So, you, you, but I just thought it was like, you know, I thought you were bullshitting mm -hmm. me. Yeah. And then I witnessed a suicide and I talked about it on my podcast and about the PTSD that I had and, uh, and it was a really brutal experience for me. And you sent me a text and you said, hey, man, I, I, I thought that was a great episode and you're really brave for talking mm -hmm. about it. And I really think this is going to help a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you, and, you know, you, you sent me this really beautiful text. And I was <laughs> like, oh, my God, he really does listen to the occasional episode. <laughs> He's and, not a bullshit. He's a partial bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I was so I was so touched by the, 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 the text and it was a real serious, raw thing that I experienced. And then uh, because you reached out to me, the timing of it was so beautiful because I witnessed that suicide November 19th, 2020. And then I was at my, probably one of my lowest points in my life uh, for like the next four months. Yeah. It kept playing over and over in my head. And then the January 6th insurrection thing happened. And I mean, I was really, yeah. Uh, I was I did not see joy in the world or in life at that moment. I was really in a dark place. And the thing that really pulled me out of it was your Gary Shandling documentary, wow. The Zen Diaries. And I was here by myself, spending so much time by myself, and comedy, Gary Shandling, this documentary lifted me out of that hole. And I, I told you... After you texted me, I was like, you know, so sweet of you to send out to me. And I go, and I told you that yeah. one of the things that helped me the most and come to come out of that black hole was was this Gary Shandling documentary. And what what parts of it were helpful? There's so much commonality to stories with comedians, and you know, we're going to talk about the George Carlin documentary mm -hmm. that you did. And there's 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 common themes in there also, but a big thing is just the low self-esteem, the beating yourself yeah. up constantly as a comedian, mm -hmm. never giving yourself credit uh, when, you know, because I, I worshiped Gary Shandling yeah. and I, and I uh, still to this day, I think Larry Sanders show is one of the greatest comedy shows ever made. I loved that show and I loved Shandling and his yeah. standup. And I thought he was so unique and he was so beautiful. And, um, uh, his his self-deprecation, his self-loathing, mm -hmm. and just 
being taken out of my problems to just identify with my tribe mm-hmm. of uh, of comedians and uh, just the the ups and downs that he went through in his career, you know. And I know yeah. you were close to him. And mm-hmm. yeah, well, I think that uh, you know, for me, it's funny you say that because like I, I wasn't feeling good in the last week, and I had COVID, and I, I was like. You know, you never know what, what what's the COVID fog and what's depression. And you just, uh, you know, went through a cycle of releasing the movie and the book sicker in the head. And, you know, just like a lot going on, giving out a lot of stuff and then getting sick. And and I was like, God, I just feel off. And I just picked up the Shandling scrapbook there. Um, yeah. And then you sent me the, you sent me the, when I told you how much the documentary you sent to me, you sent me the, the, the Shandling scrapbook you made. Because there was so much writing in the Gary Shandling documentary about, Buddhism and just him writing notes to himself to try to that self help stuff. Together. And I've done that for years when yeah. I've read stuff and like just uh, self help motivational things yeah. about. Uh, I always say, as a comedian, you have to be your own Bundini Brown. The way Muhammad Ali, that was Muhammad Ali's corner man, the guy who was always in his corner his whole yeah. career. And I always say, as a comedian, you got to be that person within your own head sure. to get off the ropes, champ. Yeah. You're great. No, it's you know? tough. I mean, you're almost uh, creating a voice in your head, a character. I mean, I have a thing on my phone in my notes, and it just says, uh, Judd's life coach. But it's just things, it's that. Just things I want to remind myself or a self-help thing that that hits for some reason. And it's always the same thing. I always think about Ram Das, who says in the documentary, you know, you want to live in your heart, not in your head. It's all bad here. It's all good here. And, you know, loving kindness, loving awareness, uh, drop the storyline is one that helps me just, okay, drop the storyline. You know, just be here now. The, you know, the simple stuff in, in, in the scrapbook, you see Gary writing all these things and they're beautiful, but you realize what he's not writing is what he's really thinking. You know, that's the response voice. We're not hearing the panicked, insecure voice flailing around. So he writes these incredible things that you know, are from him, but from probably the ideas of whatever, Buddha, Eckhart Tolle, whoever he's into at the time. And so with a documentary like The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, uh, which is on HBO for anyone who wants to see it, uh, that's like what I was saying. Like you make something and you put it out there and you hopefully do it with as little ego as possible and you go, I I hope it reached someone. I hope it touched someone. So you're in a bad it, it, it did what comedy is supposed to do, yeah. and it helped me. And I think also, like this and the George Carlin documentary that you just made, I mean, and the You're Sick in the Head books, that um, these are tools that people will be able to use forever who love comedy and want to study yeah. the, 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 the artistry of it. Yeah, that's what, that's what I hope, you know. And it, and it is one of those things where you just make it and you just put it out there and you don't know what it's doing. So, like, the first Sick in the Head book, because it has all these people that we all admire in it talking about how they make comedy, why they make comedy, how they're doing as people, how they're trying to evolve as people. And, you know, it's Chris Rock and it's Jon Stewart and so many people that we we look up to. You know that somewhere there's some 17-year-old kid reading it who's thinking about writing jokes or doing something creative and you just hope something someone said there lands for them and gives them a little gas to give it a shot. Yeah. yeah, and there's there's just always seemed like um, I, I think it was the Amy Schumer. There was some like horribly embarrassing um, incident that she she had written about, 
I think that was a breakthrough she had as a comedian. And yeah. um, it just seems like there's a there's a common theme for a lot of comedians of overcoming this um, this, this voice in your brain that's always telling you your shit. Why would yeah. people listen to you? You're worthless. Yeah, you know? it's a, it's a really powerful voice, and I haven't I've had it lately. Like, and I and I say I say to myself, what? Why does it always come back? Even at your yeah. level, you don't yeah. you like it's, go, hey. No, I mean I can fully just spin out of like, and I and I do have to go like, oh, you did this and you did that. Like you've done a couple good things, and but there's just a voice saying, shut the fuck up. Like there's a beat down voice, and then you go, what is the source of that attitude that's in your head? And you know, in in some ways, you know, I've had therapists say, you know, your brain thinks it's trying to protect you. You know, your mind thinks, if I could get you to just sit in the apartment all day long under the covers watching 90 Day Fiance, you're safe. You won't die. And so there is there is almost a, a broken, you know, fight or flight response that thinks, I need to keep you safe by just making you take no chances. And so if you look at it like that, like, oh, that my brain thinks it's helping me by telling me, don't do anything. And you have to fight through that and go, it's okay, I, I, I'm fine. But it is a powerful voice. And, and I find it a little maddening because I'm like, man, you'd think it would it would just go away at, at some point. And, I, and I, I have to like remind myself of, you know, the, there are games I'll play with myself. I'll think of one or two things I've done that I'm proud of, like the Gary Shanley documentary. And I'll, I'll try to think, well, that's enough. You know, so everything else is just a, it's a swing at the plate. But I did one or two things that, I think worked out the way I wanted them to and just stay focused on that. But you know, when you're alone with a piece of paper and you're trying to start something new, <laughs> that voice is like, don't do it. It's not going to work. And and that's the thing that we all have to do is say, okay, shut up. I'm going to do it anyway. And to have some pride that we do, because I always say to people who want to get into the creative arts, everybody quits. Like most people hear that voice and they 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 just stop. What's well, fighting through the fear? I know yeah. for the first five years I did stand up, I was terrified, and I had to fight through the fear because I yeah. I loved it and I knew it's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And even now, like at the comedy store, like this week is the Netflix um, is a joke comedy festival. So yeah. like every great yeah. comedian from yeah. New York and London yeah. and just all these brilliant comedians, and so. You know, I've got new bits that I'm working on and you go there and you see these other guys crushing and you're like, oh, geez, and, you know, <laughs> start worrying. But there's this magic transformation yeah. that happens when I get on stage and it's like, well, now this is my slice of the pie yeah. and I can do whatever I want with it. And then that once that first laugh yeah. uh, happens, all the fear is gone. What I would the anxiety that's been building like a tornado uh, all afternoon yeah. until the moment I get on stage. It's I, I didn't even do anything for the festival because I I hosted the Directors Guild Awards. I worked really hard to, you know, which is, you know, a non-televised, but like Oscars type show. Like Spielberg's there and Spike Lee, they're all right there. But it's not televised and I really enjoy doing it because it's like it's like my little private Oscars. <laughs> you know? And it's and it's fun. And I make little sketches for it and work so hard on it. And it went great. Couldn't have gone better. As good as I, as well as I've ever done doing stand-up. But then when it was time to go back to stand-up post-pandemic, I thought, I don't really know who I am right now. I don't know if I'm cynical or angry or annoyed or melancholy. And I haven't really been able to start writing the new set. 
and I've been busy finishing other projects, but I'm about to go to New York. And I, I thought, I'm just going to sign up for a ton of sets at the cellar and force myself to figure it out. And I really don't know. Like I, like, I don't have a... Because, you know, if you're pissy, it's easy to do stand-up. Eh, what the fuck is with this? And yeah, right, right. Isn't... And it's a, great, it's a great point of view, the annoyance with life. And then some people are more bemused with life, or they, you know, become surreal in some way. And some people are just storytellers. And sometimes I think, I kind of don't know what my emotion is that I'm writing from, because I know my core emotion lately is, like, troubled terror right just the world seems crazy yeah, right. and i and i feel kind of down about it i don't feel super optimistic and, and i don't really want to write jokes from that place so i almost have to create a persona to write jokes from i even in my head thought maybe i'll just like pick an attitude and just write a bunch of jokes as if i it's not me like create a character and this just to get it going and then it'll re- reveal itself on stage i'll find it but it is it is tricky to start post-pandemic because the world has changed and I don't want to do the jokes I was telling before the pandemic. I don't feel yeah. like I'm that person anymore. Well, the pandemic taught me a, a number of things. Number one, uh, it taught me how much I love sleeping in my own bed. I'm not doing the road at all yeah. anymore. And um, thank God I don't have to. And I didn't realize how bad I needed a year off. And that's another thing, like a common thing, like in the Carlin documentary, how just the constant travel, and he was away from his wife, and it destroyed him. She did everything—the uh, the marketing and the you know, PR and booking dates and all this stuff. And then when he got famous, he had a team of people doing that, and she felt like she didn't have an identity of yeah. of her own. I know the constant travel has killed every relationship I was ever in, and then also that was a thing with my ex-wife, who I'm still really good friends with. She didn't feel like she had an identity of her own because. Yeah it was all about my career. So like there's just these constant recurring themes in the story of, of comedians' lives. For me, comedy is my religion, my political party. So these stories are biblical to yeah. me. Well, that's a, it's a fascinating story, Carl, because he started, you know, 1960 in a comedy team. Then they break up. He was with Jack Burns, who, who was later in Burns and Schreiber. And then he, you know, he meets his wife, Brenda, she works at the at the at the club. She was a waitress at the yeah. Dayton Club. Yeah, and then a few months later, they're married. And and what's weird was a few weeks before we were completely done with the documentary, his daughter Kelly Carlin, who was a producer on it and was the main voice of the documentary, said, "I hate to tell you this, but I just found a big bag of their love letters and their letters to each other from their whole lives." And we're like, oh God, now we got to read all these. And wow. what, what did we not put in that we should have? And it, they start out literally like the day after they met. And then a letter the, after the first time they had sex. And then a, a letter asked, you know, talking about let's get married. And it's like just a few weeks after they met. But then it turns into we're broke. And then letter to, the, to her parents asking for money because they only have $7 in the bank. And letters from him on the road. And this was interesting because this is like being on the road in 60 around that time he would go on the road if the headliner got sick and the show got canceled he's like in the midwest and you would you wouldn't just like zip home on a jet you would call your manager and go is there anywhere i can play i'm stuck here in illinois what can we do and then suddenly he doesn't have work for the next two weeks but he doesn't want to go home because he can't really afford the plane to do it and it, it was like wow that was a rough life there weren't that many 
job opportunities if you weren't in at the big places. And he says this thing, it's that first time when he decides to go off the road, when he wanted to give up that old uh, Danny Kaye wannabe on television persona for when he became like the the counterculture long hair yeah. beard guy yeah. where he took a year off the road and uh, and stayed in Greenwich Village and just worked on his new act, whatever he wanted, yeah. the next incarnation of himself that he wanted to do. But he says the line, he's on some interview thing and it's in the documentary. He goes, I'm, uh, I, 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 I can't do the road. There's, there's no money in it. It's the, yeah. you, uh, you spend all your money on the traveling yeah. and that's it. That's still... Whenever he said that in like the late 60s, that's been a, a, a constant theme uh, in my life and many other sure. comedians. And he had problems with the IRS. He didn't do his taxes properly or at all at some point. It's a little bit of a mystery how he screwed up his taxes right when he was successful. And then suddenly he owed, I would assume, millions to the government. And there's interest on it. And now he's on the road constantly just paying off the government and got himself in this really bad cycle. And and that made him the kind of person who was away from his family. So then way he too had much. to be on the road. Had to, to be on the, the road. Money coming in. And his wife is now an alcoholic because this life is not working out for her, and she's depressed, and her husband's never home, and she her dreams aren't being fulfilled in any way. And he's on cocaine, and and now he's which really opens you up emotionally. <laughs> exactly. He's literally doing <laughs> binges alone, just writing jokes and listening to music, and he's not partying with people. He's just doing a lot of cocaine by himself. It's, it appears. And then they come home and fight around Kelly. And it sounds like a really harrowing childhood. And then it becomes a little bit of a triumph that they survived it and they didn't break up and they, you know, got sober and, and worked it out. And I think he had struggles with addiction afterwards. But for the most part, a lot of that got resolved. And, uh, and then tragically, his wife died, you know, relatively young. Uh, it's a beautiful love story throughout it and that they stayed together yeah. you know through the alcoholism and the drug addiction and it's a beautiful story with with the daughter kelly and they're in hawaii and they have they have that kind of u.n peace treaty yeah that the, the um the the wife is going to give up the the booze and you know he's going to give up the coke and just how that family stayed together is no it's a showbiz miracle. miracle i mean most people wouldn't and uh and so that's the part that interests me the most i'm also interested in how does someone stay engaged creatively, you know, for five decades? How, how do you stay current? How do you keep changing and evolving with the times? And that's what's so interesting right now, as the Roe versus Wade uh, disintegrates in front of us, suddenly everyone turns to George Carlin because he had these routines. In 1996, he did his big, uh, you know, they don't care about uh, life. You know, the second you're born, they don't care about you. Uh, and so he is one of the, you know, the rare people that the material gets better with age. That's my thing with Carlin. I wasn't a fan of his early work. I loved everything he did. Like the, the period that a lot of people like were turned off by him, like the, the, the end years, I think was his greatest work. And for me, he's the greatest shining example for a comedian that you can actually get better yeah. with age mm -hmm. and, you know, I love the, the documentary so strong, especially where, you know, he got like I didn't I never I never liked the hippy dippy weatherman mm -hmm. and all that that 
period of yeah. Carlin where he was like the stoner counterculture guy. And then uh, the, 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 what was it, SCTV uh, ridiculed him over the um, his weird peas observations <laughs> yes. and all that, which pissed him off. Mm-hmm. And then Kinnison's come comes out, and then he gets um, not frightened, but he got inspired that you know these people are making fun of me for being this like kind of dork observationalist, and I know I've got all these raw feelings about yeah. the world and this country, what's happening. And for me, that's his 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 best. Uh, yeah. His best work. Well, he, you know, he did the thing that most people don't do, which is he redoubled his efforts. You know, you know he he saw where it was going. So he, you know, he was popular in the seventies, but then people started making fun of him because he was probably running out of gas. He put out a lot of records. It was a lot of material. He he was one of the few people that was really making a record every year. So after five six hours of material, it's getting kind of corny, and everyone starts making fun of him. Like SCTV's brutal doing impressions of him. It's, it was like death of a salesman with- I had never seen that before until oh the documentary. I mean, it's, it's online. So the whole thing, it's like a 15 minute sketch where he plays one of uh, Willie Loman's children. And it's like Ricardo, is Dave Thomas is playing, um, is playing like DeForest Kelly as one of the sons of Willie Loman, which is played by Ricardo Montalban. Joe Flaherty is Ricardo Montalban. And George Carlin is the other one of Willie Loman's kids. And, it's so mean and so well observed, and it, and that along with Cheech Marin saying George Carlin's over, he's just talking about peas, and that made him get funnier. He 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 didn't crumble. He got funnier and he went deeper. And then another ten years later, he saw Sam Kinison, and he thought, I don't want to be the corny guy. Yeah, I, I he was like, I got to keep up with what people are doing. And then when you watch the rest of his career, and it got very dark and intense. It makes sense that that was a reaction to Sam Kennison. because he, he just he, the, the fearlessness, you know, especially mm-hmm. someone who's made their name in show business. You've got a certain um, cachet of being yes. able to play theaters, and it, there's just the the times in his career. And Bill Burr says it beautifully in the thing, like compares him to Miles Davis. So the brilliant thing about Miles Davis, he had completely yeah. changed his style like six times. Yeah. But those dangerous uh, risk taking career moments where Carlin just put everything on hold and tried to take it higher. Um, I think, I remember when Kinnison came out and I loved him and I thought he was dangerous, but like I, a lot of his stuff doesn't age well. Well, it ran out of gas. I mean, I saw him in 86 for the first time at the club. That was when he was. That was right before he hit. I mean, you know, he had done the Dangerfield special and he was on Saturday Night Live and, and, and did stand up on Saturday Night Live. And we did a, a benefit for Comic Relief. That was my first job as like a production assistant at Comic Relief. So he did a benefit at the Comedy Store and half the place had never heard of him. He, he hadn't really broken through big yet. And he walked half the place. And then the, the people who stayed, it was one of the great things they've ever seen. I mean, Kinison didn't care. People, I mean, people just got up in droves. I'd never seen that before or since really where someone goes so hard that the place is like, we need to leave. And then the people who decided to stay, it was the best night of their lives. And that was maybe the most exciting night I've ever seen in comedy. A crowd that didn't know Kinnison encountering Kinnison when he was at his best. But then quickly turned into you know, drugs and 
rock and roll, and he was on a different kind of celebrity trip. Yeah, and like the material third, didn't keep up with it. That third album he put out, it was like half rock and roll yeah. cover songs, and it was. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. again, if you if, if you're not really focused on what you're saying. Like George Carlin was always obsessed on what he was saying. If you get caught up in a lot of the other trappings, and obviously addiction, you're not going to do your best. Writing. One of my favorite Carlin things is I don't know if you've ever heard the audio book for When Will Jesus Bring the Pork Chops? <laughs> it's great. It's just his, he's, he's basically just reading all these jokes. Yeah. He was in a sound booth yeah. and he's got, because that's what uh, the, he's reading the book and it's just. It's just great to yeah. just listen to him, uh, just a, a barrage of one-liners yeah. and, and silly observations. And That's stuff. probably the one thing that, that I think the documentary neglects, which is he would make these books like brain droppings with like a thousand mini observation and jokes, some of them political, a lot of them just silly. And I don't think the documentary really takes like a few minutes to go deep into the ridiculous wordplay stuff. Yeah. Some of it's pretty remarkable. But it's funny because I, I looked at your shelf and you had this one, which I guess is all of his books uh, in one big book. But in it, I opened up to this. Uh, in an earlier book, Brain Droppings, I wrote some things about politically correct language, but left out a few areas. I neglected three important groups of people who have had this awkward, dishonest language inflicted on them by liberals. I omitted those who are crippled, ugly, or stupid. And so to address these omissions, I'd like to make a brief return visit to that playground of guilty white liberals' political correctness. Political correctness is America's newest form of intolerance, and it especially, it's especially pernicious because it comes disguised as tolerance. It presents itself as fairness, yet attempts to restrict and control people's language with strict codes and rigid rules. I'm not sure that's the way to fight discrimination. I'm not sure if silencing people or forcing them to alter their speech is the best method for solving problems that go much deeper than speech. And then, and then he goes really hard <laughs> and, does a, and does a lot of really troubling jokes. But it's interesting because he was talking about all these issues a really long time ago, and now it's really exploded. And I guess the, the core idea is, are you allowed to hurt people's feelings? And, and, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the comedy club format because you get all different types of comedians. So if you want a very soft comedian, you might get a hard one at a comedy club. And also the idea that I think due to Netflix and social media and streaming, that I think everybody thinks that everything is for everybody. Where I've, when I was younger, I thought, well, some people like country music, some people like Metall Metallica, but the country music people are not listening to Metallica. But I think in our in our current culture, the Metallica is played for you, and if you're a Metallica fan, the country music is played for you, and then everyone is is shocked that certain people really hate certain pieces of music or art or movies or comedy or TV. Everything really isn't for everybody. And that's why I think so many people are offended because in the old days, you know, if you didn't like Don Rickles, you just wouldn't go to a Don Rickles concert. Yeah. But now it would just be in your face all the time. And then you're like, no, I don't, I don't like that. That doesn't make me happy. That's wrong. Well, we live in an, an age of extremism. Everything is, is extreme. And it seems like you have to be extreme on social media to get attention. And everyone feels entitled to... Um, to criticize and, yeah. and, and be cruel about anything they disagree with. 
I always think that comedians are just characters, right? So when I go to a club, and there's certainly jokes that I think it's fine to say, that joke sucks, or that joke's mean. I don't think there's anything wrong with people speaking up yeah. and going like, what you're saying there is awful, right? Like we're all in a giant conversation and, and that's okay. But there's a big difference between that and you shouldn't work. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, all, all comedy is an experiment and we all fail all the time. And so I think comedians sometimes think, I'm not supposed to be criticized. But, you know, if I make a movie, you can shit on it. If I make a TV show or a documentary. And if you do stand-up, yeah, people are allowed to say they don't like it and why they don't like it. But that's very different from you shouldn't get a special. Yeah. You shouldn't be on, on, on TV. Uh, but because when I go to a club, sometimes and if I'm just watching, I'll always think to myself, I'm not supposed to like all these people. It's like going to the zoo, you know, like there are people and they're really mean on stage. And if I can get in the right spirit, I could just get a kick out of their attitude. And it's just funny. They want to say that. It's funny. They believe that. And then someone else might be kind of really like sweet. Their observations are very gentle and maybe they're insightful or surreal in some way. And, and go, oh, that's a different character. And that's what comedy is in a comedy club. Like a, like at the comedy store, if there's 12 people, you're getting a whole bunch of different characters. And But there are certain people that watch it and they're just like, I'm out. I can't believe that, that person would say that. And the thing I always think about is Howard Stern. When I was a kid, Howard Stern did a bit he got fired for where he, he made jokes because there was a plane crash and he called the airline and he said, uh, when is the next plane going to this bridge? Because a plane had crashed and like landed near a bridge. And I remember that he was defending it and he was like, you know, people's lives are hard and so for some people, it makes them happy to do the darkest joke ever. Like to say the worst thing that you could ever say is their release from how hard and awful life can be. And I remember at the time thinking, yeah, because I don't love that joke. But if you do love that joke, who am I to say you shouldn't be allowed to have that in your life? The way someone might love death metal or something. And maybe yeah. I don't want to hear that. I want to. Well, like the, remember when Gilbert Gottfried did the, the post 9-11 joke about the, um, the what was the... Uh, oh, the rose the connection at the World Trade Center or something. And I remember everybody was so offended by it. And I remember even I was thinking, ooh, that's kind of, that's fucking cruel because it was right after it. Yeah. But as a comedian, I was like, oh my God, he pushes yeah. his balls in a wheelbarrow. Like yeah. what a, just the balls on that guy. I just always admired like just the balls of it. And yeah, I think that's it. the thing with the Carlin stuff too. The like some people were turned off by the his I, his angry wisdom at the end. I thought it was like the purest big dick rock and roll since yeah. Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Well, he's like saying, "Wake up!" It's kind of like the movie "Don't Look Up." He was just saying the world is fucked. We're not taking care of the planet. We're not taking care of each other. We're in danger. All the systems keep hurting us, and so he's hitting you in the head with a bat. And I think we see just in all the ways that we don't take care of each other. I mean, in California right now, they're about to like make it so that you can't use water most of the time. We are literally about to run out of water in California in a, in a very serious way. And if you tell people like, you can only water your lawn once a week, and they're like, what, what, it's gonna get brown, <laughs> you know? But no, no, we're running out of water, right? So sometimes you need someone to kick you in the face comedically 
to say, you're, you're asleep. And that's what he did. He went as dark as you can go. And what's funny is now that, you know, he's been gone about 14 years, you, you re-watch those bits. And sometimes you think, they're not dark enough. Like well, it's it, it funny. Like, there was a. I I have it in the next room. I saw it somewhere and I bought it. It's every. It's a DVD of every George yeah. Carlin. Um, I, I think I found it at Barnes and Nobles. Yeah. Uh, it's every HBO special he ever did. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm gonna work mm-hmm. my way. And you put on the first one, and he's like, I think maybe it was done at UCLA or something. Oh, USC, the Bovard, yeah. the USC, and uh, and it's the whole. Like it's kind of like, hey. It's this new sensation of, it's a, a comedy special was like a new thing. Yeah. And he's kind of commenting on the, the, just the newness of it. Mm-hmm. This is being recorded. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I saw this tape of Springsteen. He was in like Kansas City in like 1978 and they had just gotten screens for the first time, the giant screen. Wow. And he's like playing guitar and he's like looking at the screen and he's like pretending to pick his nose like it was the best joke ever. He couldn't believe that he was up there. But it's funny to see Springsteen's mind blown that people could watch the screen. Uh, I love this, this technique in storytelling that you use on these documentaries where you take, with Chandling it was the notebooks and with Carlin it was like agendas and notebooks and things and it, it, he had written this note uh, you can't care and be really funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you can't care if you're offending people. Yeah, you have to just go all the way. I think he 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 overly cared about yeah. humanity, even though I took he it like you can't saying, care about their reaction. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, that it's okay to lose some people, and I get that. Like, if you go like, you know, if you look at the people today, like Bill Burr or some something, you know, he's going hard. Yeah, he doesn't. It's not all about like caring about your feelings, and that is when when you get to explosive comedy, and, and maybe some people will think, oh, that's too far. But when you're really going for the rafters, yeah, you know, I think that's what he means. Like you can't care in, in that way. There was a note I saw where he said like, uh, you know, uh, Amer- the story of America is a story of being seduced and betrayed. You know, seduced into believing these ideas and then betrayed by all the ways they screw you over. Did you know Carson or Carlin personally? Did you ever meet him? I met him a couple of times. I, I think at the Comedy Magic Club, he would try out sets. I saw him in Igby's once, and I remember he, he got on stage. He basically said, they'd say you can't make jokes about this. And then he just did it hard. <laughs> and it was rough. Like, oh, they say this is the subject that you're not allowed to make jokes about. And then he would do eight minutes on it. Oh, they say this is a subject that there's nothing funny about. And then he went at it. And it, it, it was like, as far as you've ever seen anyone go. And then I interviewed him for Canadian television when I was about 22. It was the only tape I couldn't find. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was the, the video of me talking to him. But I didn't, you know, he wasn't around. I mean, you know, he's not a guy you would see at the comedy store. He, he, he didn't behave like he was part of the tribe. He was on his own. He, he, I think he was very kind to people. And I, I kept hearing stories where he would meet a, a young comedian and he would take their number and then th- they would say, and out of the blue, six months later, he just called me and said, how you doing? How's your career going? And he would chat with them. And, and that's pretty amazing. Wow. Like he would just follow up with random people. Well, I love um, Stephen Wright in the documentary. He basically says that, that he would... Yeah. Carlin would call him randomly and just lay a joke on him. Yeah. 
I met George Carlin once uh, at, in 1995. HBO did the uh, very first Aspen Comedy Festival. Mm -hmm. It was such a magical experience, uh, that festival. And one of the marquee main events of that festival was George Carlin did a uh, Q&A at the Wheeler Opera House. And uh, and the, the whole audience was comedians. And it was John Stewart. Well, John Stewart was asking him questions. And the thing I remember most from that uh, interview, John Stewart had asked him about uh, using drugs to write mm -hmm. material. Did he ever like smoke marijuana mm -hmm. uh, to come up with his material? And he said that he never uses drugs or smokes marijuana to write his material. But after he's written his material, at one point, he'll smoke a joint and go back and read it. Mm -hmm. And it's touch-up time. <laughs> <laughs> or punch-up time. Yeah, yeah, That's what yeah. <laughs> that was the funniest thing. And it's punch-up well, time. Well, he does say that like his whole thing changed because he took like acid and mescaline and like the Beatles and R. Crumb, he had one of those experiences where... You know, he took uh, hallucinogens and saw a wider picture. One of my favorite moments of the documentary is when he's on the talk show. Maybe mm -hmm. it was the Dick Cavett show with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Oh, he's on Mike <clears throat> Douglas' show. And they're asking him questions about uh, comedy? About, well, they're talking about, he's talking about be becoming himself on stage. And... And you're listening to him, and then they widen out, and you reveal he's saying it to John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And, and Yoko Ono's like laughing because that's their whole thing, which is, you know, them becoming a pure version of their creative selves out there. And they took huge risks to, to do the music they were doing at that time. Yeah, every once in a while, when you make a documentary, you find a piece of tape. Gold. You can't believe it. Like they had Richard Pryor and George Carlin on the John Davidson summer show in the 60s before either of them went edgy and they're just in their corniest will do anything to be on tv vibe and they're wearing sweaters and singing songs and and uh it's amazing that that exists uh something i learned about you from reading sick in the head we're the same age mm -hmm. and i had never heard anyone else mm -hmm. say this but it was something that, because I knew I wanted to be a comedian since I was 11. My father took mm -hmm. me to a show in Washington, D.C. Uh, and and the state. Uh, my uncle did open, my family's originally from Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And uh, the my uncle did open mic nights for one year. My father loved stand-up comedy. Yeah. Pryor was his dude. And I remember we had, Pryor and Bob Newhart were yeah. my dad's favorites. And we had the vinyl records. And I remember driving around with my dad, he would be listening to Richard Pryor record or cassettes or uh, a track or whatever it was. And there was no seat belts. Mm -hmm. And I was a little kid. <laughs> yeah. And I remember driving as a little kid standing next to my dad as he drove, mm -hmm. listening to Pryor <laughs> and feeling his shoulders shake when he would yeah. laugh. As we're, And I just, um, comedy, com comedians have always been, you know, wizards of great power uh, since I was a kid. So it was very revered in my household. And then my uncle did open mic nights for one year in Washington, D.C. And my dad took me to yeah. see him. This place called L. Brookman's. The stage is next to the entrance. The show was in progress. We walk in. I'm wearing a Washington Redskins mm -hmm. jacket. The comedian on stage 
pulls me on stage and he interviews me like I'm the coach of the Redskins. <laughs> and I'm 11. I just gave little dopey bashful one more dancers. Yeah. Yes, no. Yeah. That moment changed my life forever. Wow. I'll never forget standing on that stage and seeing all those um, people uh, with their heads thrown back in laughter and all the teeth in their mouth. Yeah. And DC is a very uh, diverse city. Mm. I remember just a very diverse audience. And to me, when you were on stage on comedy, yeah. you were speaking to the world. Yeah. So you had a similar experience where your mother mm -hmm. uh, and father got divorced and your mother started working at a comedy club and you went to a, a show. Yeah. You would, you would go to shows and see comedians. Yeah, I'd seen a few shows. I remember seeing people at Westbury Music Fair on Long Island. So we went to see Don Rickles, Dangerfield, Toady Fields. You saw Toady Fields? Yeah, my grandma was buddies with Toady Fields. So she wow. was there with Bert Convy. And so we, uh, and she was like a part of our world that... that Molly was friends with the coolest person in the world, Toadie Fields. <laughs> and that was probably a big part of it, was just the awe in which they talked about her as being this incredibly talented, funny, great person. And I remember seeing her, and she had one leg because she had diabetes, and she just had to have her leg amputated. Wow. And she came out in a golf cart and just standing ovation and then did jokes about having one leg. And I, I don't know if I'm reinventing history, but I do look back and think, that it's a weird kid. I just thought, look how weird Toady Fields is. And people adore her and she's getting standing ovations and she's funny and she's talking about who she is. And I'm sure I, I didn't have words for it, but just energetically, I must have thought that's the coolest thing ever. The thing I was, that's where, where, I, where I was gonna uh, lead that statement to, I got sidetracked. But I did this as a kid because from that moment on comedy, I became a student of stand-up comedy. And SNL was only, that was 1978. When I was 11, SNL was, was new and Carson was my God. Mm -hmm. And I would take the TV guide and I would yeah. highlight yeah, when too. they had a comedian on Mike Douglas, I'd look at all mm -hmm. the uh, Johnny Carson. So when there was a comedian on TV, I would be in front of the television watching yeah. it. And, and you say that in Sick in the Head and I'm like, you know, my tribal brethren. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, Jeff Holtman and Michael Keaton. They, they, Do you see any <laughs> neutrons in my nose? Like Jeff Holtman, was, he did the weirdest material. Loved him. There's an amazing uh, Gilbert Gottfried podcast from this with year. Jeff with Jeff Holtman. With Jeff with amazing stories of that, that era. And then my mom and dad got divorced, and my mom got a job as a hostess at a comedy club in Southampton, where she moved. And the person that ran it was Rick Messina, who was a bartender at a restaurant my parents owned. And then he started working in comedy, and he later became uh, Drew Carey and Tim Allen's manager, a big, a big manager. But did you ever thank him for changing your life? I'm sure you did. I'm sure I have. Yeah. Oh, I'd say I did. I did in person once uh, at some awards ceremony. But you know, he was nice to my mom and gave my mom this job. I can't imagine what she got paid. I mean, what do you get paid to seat people at a comedy club for a couple hours? Yeah. So I always thought she must have done it for me because I, I literally, what could she have gotten? Fifty bucks. To, to seat people for yeah. the night, 80 bucks. And then he let me be a dishwasher at the Eastside Comedy Club and then a busboy. And that's when I would see you know, Rosie O'Donnell and Eddie Murphy and Bob Nelson and that generation of people. And I secretly always wanted to do it, would never tell anyone. And then started interviewing comedians from my <clears throat> high school radio station. That's what that book is. And then the new sicker, book, Sicker in the Head, is 
they're all new interviews except I put an old John Candy interview I did in the 80s in there. But it's like Sasha Baron Cohen and Nathan Fielder and Amber Ruffin and it's, you know, what's happening now. Well, I, I can't wait to read it because I mean like sick in the head again, like the Shandling documentary and the George Carlin documentary. I mean, I, I think these are uh, educational tools for anybody who wants to be a comedian. The I mean, and, and someone like me who's been in uh, the business a long time, I it just refreshes my love yeah. for stand-up. And another thing you say in the book, it, like in high school, the when other kids were like into Led Zeppelin and mm-hmm. bands, you were yeah. into comedians. And, yeah. and you crystallized it in those words for me because like when I was 14 and 15, 16, Rodney Dangerfield was my God. Yeah. And I found this after my father died. I was looking through his stuff. I went to see Dangerfield when I was 15. Oh, wow. It's a, this shirt is a medium. <laughs> and I used to wear this to, to other kids wearing rock band shirts. I was wearing this Dangerfield. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good one. You could, you could probably sell that for like $800. I would right never now. sell this. <laughs> I love it. I, yeah, I saw him. He talked so fast. Every time you left, you missed two jokes at Westbury Music Fair. And then I did Dangerfields, I remember. And I would see him at the improv every once in a while in the in the later days. And then he did a, a Rodney Dangerfield special where he presented young comedians. Yeah, My those friend, were game changers and that made Kennison a star and, and Roseanne and, all kinds and, and of people. Bob Saget. And this one, my friend Sid Youngers was on, they did it at UCLA. And I got hired to warm up the crowd and go on in between every comedian when they switched the sets. Oh, wow. And so it, it, was, it was pretty wild to just be around that because you know, the Young Comedian special on HBO and those Rodney specials, that that was the bar. I mean, if you could get on those shows, yeah, it, that was life-changing. I remember the excitement of watching those, you yeah. know, and uh, uh, those specials were everything. You tell this beautiful story in Sick in the Head about seeing Dangerfield at the Improv, I think mm-hmm. it was, and he comes there in a robe, yeah, and he's not doing his material, and you said it was really uncomfortable, and he's just like, he's talking to some woman like, yeah, you'll love me. You, yeah, you'd be different or whatever. Yeah, you'd change my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you're the one. You, you'd change my life. You'd love me for me, right? You'd love me for me. <laughs> it, was, it was really kind of brutal. And then he said, you know, sometimes life makes perfect sense. And then you come. And, and, I, and Rodney had that thing where he would go on late at night. He would not do the act. And he would do this other thing, which was hysterical and dark and sad. And sometimes the funniest thing ever. Uh, where he just did not give a fuck. Yeah, you said how how beautiful it was. What's it was the, I didn't. I met him a few times through mm-hmm. the years, and he he was kind of standoffish. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess seeing a comedian really reveal their true character instead mm-hmm. of telling jokes is. Uh, well, we went to see him uh, at Vegas. Me and Sandler and a bunch of comedians and people like when he was like in his early eighties. And then afterwards, we're hanging out with him, and everyone's like smoking pot with Rodney. And I'm like, yo, Rodney, my grandma was friends with Tony Fields. What did you think of her? And he's like, oh, she was what she was. I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, she was what she was. <laughs> Who knows what? It, it seemed like the meanest thing you could ever say. It was the most <laughs> dismissive, terrible, terrible thing. But he, yeah, he was such a character. And even then, talking about movies he wants to make and getting financing and I got this new script where I'm like a Mormon. I got like 11 wives and you know, he, he was always, you know, hustling. Well, you're talking about Tony Fields. The, when I saw Danger Field, I saw him at the Tupperware Theater in Orlando mm-hmm. and I had every album memorized. 
every joke. I mean, I worshiped the guy. He was plastered drunk. Yeah. And he's and he was he's he wasn't that he wasn't that sharp that yeah. night. Yeah. Uh, me and the guy I was with when the show we wanted to meet him. There was no security. We snuck backstage <laughs> the theater with the big curtains. We just uh, went up the side steps and went in the back. It's dark. There's a light <laughs> way off in the distance. We head towards the light, and Dangerfield is sitting there. He was already drunk, and he's he's got now he's got his pants off, and his pants are over a chair. <clears throat> I've told this story to so many comedians through the years. I learned that that was an old Catskill comedian trick. Yeah. They would take their pants off to preserve the dry cleaning crease, yeah. mm -hmm. and uh, and he's sitting there in front of a, a, a beer, and we're like, Rodney, we love you, Rodney, Rodney. Hey, hey, you kids. All right, baby, all right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then his road manager comes and he kicks us out. And we said, we want to talk to Rodney. He goes, he's coming out this door in about 30 minutes. You wait out there. Mm -hmm. And there, there's a waiting Lincoln Town car for him. Mm -hmm. And there's a steel exit door. And he comes out the door 30 minutes later. There's three cement yeah. steps from the exit door to the waiting Lincoln Town car. Mm -hmm. And he goes, hey, you kids, give me a hand. And he, uh, help me out, will you? He put one arm around me and one arm around my buddy. And I'll never forget carrying this old man's torso wow. down these three cement steps. And then we placed him in the back of the waiting Lincoln Town car as if he were the Christ child. Wow. And then the car drove away. And that blew me. Like, here's a guy, an old man in his 70s. Yeah. And I was 15. And it could have been the Rolling Stones or Led yeah. Zeppelin. That's how well, I probably felt. was in his 60s then. Wow. I mean, we're his age then. <laughs> wow. He just always seemed like an he old man. He always seemed like, a, like an old guy. Yeah. But but and I, I always thought a lot about him. When we were doing funny people, I thought a lot about him. Just like people who would put everything into the career, you know, just all their, their energy. What? Uh, how have you gotten better as a storyteller now that you've made so many films and documentaries? Is there, because another great thing that you say twice in Sick in the Head is the greatest thing anybody, the greatest you were told the greatest gift you can give is your story. Yeah. And I've talked with that about, I've talked with a, a lot of young comedians and comedian friends uh, about that since I read the book. I think that's the, um, the, the holy grail uh, magic yeah. chalice to it all. Well, I, I, it took me a long time to think my story was interesting or was worth anyone hearing. Because again, that's a negative voice. It's like, shut up, no one cares about your, your story. But as I tried to reveal my inner life, I realized, oh, people are responding way more to it. And I, I feel like we see this in comedy a lot. You know, John Mulaney has a rough year. He goes on stage. He, he's very honest about his life and what he's going through. And suddenly he's selling out, you know, arenas because people want that. They, 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 they could tell when you're authentic and you're sharing something. And so that is the mantra I always get back to. Sometimes I don't have that much to share, and that's the problem. It's not, you know, like I believe I should share my story, but I'm like, nothing's really happening right now that's that interesting. But I do think that's the key, and, and we see it with so many people who have these specials. I mean, the new um, special by uh, Gerard Carmichael, you know, uh, it, it's so great because he's Where he comes so out. real. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, and, he, and he's so present, and he's having this conversation with the crowd, and it's kind of beautiful how the crowd is speaking up and talking to him and he's answering and it feels like very natural almost like you're at a dinner table and, and i think people long for that type of experience it seems like i mean you've evolved 
as an artist and a storyteller because you're you're dealing more now with coming of age stories, yeah. which I think is 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 admirable. I think all stories are coming of age. You know, I was talking to Norman Lear. Norman's ninety nine. I was talking to him like a year ago. He was just talking about something with his dad. You know, when he was young, his dad went to jail for some sort of stock scam. So when he was a kid, he got sent to you know, an aunt's house who was not happy to have him there. And it's, the, and it's all the, the, this, his book about himself and this documentary about him. But he was talking about his dad and issues with his dad as if it just happened. I mean, it literally happened like in the 20s, <laughs> right? And, and I just thought, yeah, we're all kind of coming of age always. We're always in some version of evolving. And so this idea that coming of age is when you're 13 or when you graduate high school, it's, it's really not true. It, you know, my kids just moved out and that's a coming of age moment. Like, what the hell am I going to do now? What is life? How do I organize it? What, 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 what should I do with my time? What should Leslie and I do as a couple? And I feel like that's the thing that interests me is that uh, attempt to grow up is it just goes on till the end. Uh, you know, I mean, like King of Staten Islands deals with uh, the father's death and, you know, this is 40, deals with getting older. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned your kids moving out. I remember um, at Montreal meeting you and briefly, not, not meeting, I'd already known you, but um, briefly getting to hang out with you and your daughter, Maud. Yeah, yeah. Who's now on Euphoria. Yeah. And I, I've only seen a handful of those episodes and I think I would never have children now. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. It's like, really? That's yeah. what, uh, there's just, um, wow. What well, a- it's an amazing story, Euphoria, because, you know, it's about addiction. It's basically Sam Levinson, who, who uh, is writing from a very personal place about issues he's had with addiction, especially in, in high school. And so the show has been on for two years. And what he did, which is really remarkable, is it's somewhat terrifying, you know, the first run of shows. Especially the pilot episode, uh, the, man. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it 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 really goes all the way, but over two years, suddenly it it gets really beautiful, and it it is about the the trauma that changes all these kids and affects their lives and their choices, and then uh, it, it gets a, like this incredible healing place at, at the end, and a lot of that involves Maud's character, and she did such a remarkable job on it. So yeah, it is funny. I forgot because I I took Maud to Montreal. Which is great. You know, I don't remember how old she was. Maybe she was seventeen, mid-teen, or eighteen, think, yeah. and took her to a bunch of shows. And my kids don't love stand up. Like it's a little bit of a her doing me a favor to drag her around. But we wound up at this bar that was owned by the, the band Arcade Fire, like Win Butler, and we're there, and I'm with Maud and. Suddenly, Win Butler's there, and we're, we're we're talking to him, and uh, and his buddy sits down, and they bring out all this like Caribbean liquor of some sort. I forgot what it was, and it's incredible, like Haitian food. And suddenly, we're like doing drinks with Arcade Fire, and now I'm hammered with my daughter <laughs> with Arcade Fire, and we're having like the the greatest afternoon ever i'm sure to her it was more traumatizing of just being intimidated but she was really funny and i used to do a joke on stage where i said and i realized something that my daughter's way cooler drunk 
Like she was so funny. <laughs> it's the worst thing you could say. Like now when she's not drunk, I'm like, I like the other you better. Uh, that might be that might be uh, good new potential material. I remember when I lived in Amsterdam, my father came and visited mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And I thought it was important that I, I wanted to, to get high with my dad. Yeah. <laughs> and so we, we went to a coffee shop. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't that good of an idea. Yeah. Because he, was, <laughs> he wouldn't shut up. Yeah. He just, oh, my God. And I used to love going to your Little League games. And you know what? You yeah. were really good, man. You were a good hitter. Yeah. And he's just like going on and on. I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah. I thought it would be like we'd have this like chilled, great yeah. conversation. That's but it funny. was like he got all amped up and just. He became a chatterbox. You became a chatterbox. Yeah. So that was great going to Just for Laughs. We went to see Maria Bamford perform. And we saw Oh, Hello with Mulaney and Kroll. That, that, that was really like a special parent trip. That's great. I love comedy so much. And you know, like being at the comedy store, like I was there Saturday night and then I I just, you know, I, got, I got there an hour and a half early to watch mm-hmm. comedians and then I stayed until the yeah. end of the night and just running back and forth from the OR yeah. to the main room to see who's on. Yeah, that's And uh, just how people are expressing themselves, the difference yeah. in, um, personalities like you were talking about before angry yeah. people or yeah. sweet people it's just such a beautiful rainbow of of humanity and i think comedy's better than it's ever been because yeah. there's more diversity and more um it it's not just like straight white guys yeah uh, like it was in the 80s mostly yeah i mean it's 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 definitely deeper i mean that's part of what, what i tried to capture in the book I, you know i got you know hasan minaj and, and and rami and mindy kaling and Amber Ruffin, and, and I, you know, I tried to like open it up because like when I started really was old, it's like, you know, the people that I grew up with on Long Island, it was Paul Reiser and Jerry Seinfeld and, and, and Dangerfield and, and those people are still like the legends and, you know, the best, but there's so many incredible people from all sorts of other communities. And yeah. when I started, you know, at the improv, it wasn't like that. You know, you, you, you do the, I used to host the whole night of the improv from eight o'clock to one thirty in the morning. And, you know, most nights there'd be one or two women on a very long lineup and maybe, you know, like one black comedian. And that was kind of it. You know? I moved to San Francisco in 1990. Gay comedians didn't play at the regular clubs. Yeah. They had Josie's Cabaret and Juice Joint in the Castro mm. district. Yeah. It's unbelievable to think that uh, even gay comedians weren't. Yeah. Uh, or there were gay comedians who wouldn't say they were gay. Yeah. You know, there were a lot, of, a lot of people like that, that you, you knew it and they were funny and maybe the crowd knew it too, but they didn't talk about it explicitly. I love the diversity now and Hassan Minaj, that his king, prom king, I love that uh, special, mm-hmm. that first special that kind of put him on the map. I know we've been rambling for mm-hmm. a while, mm-hmm. um, so I should probably uh, start to wrap this up. I want to ask you or tell you just a couple mm-hmm. things. Um, how did the pandemic, because like I was telling you, uh, I had like the greatest first half of the pandemic mm-hmm. before I witnessed yeah. the, the the suicide and everything. How did the pandemic, um, how did you cope with it? And, and how did it change you as a person? Because yeah. we were talking about before about, I, I don't know if we, when you, how you mentioned it about getting back into standup, like coming out of the pandemic after so much time off, I feel like I'm starting over. Yeah, and I think there's something really exciting about that. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing the road. I'm just yeah. doing it for the love of writing jokes, like mm-hmm. I did when I was a teenager yeah. when I started. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. 
Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not sure exactly. I mean, when the pandemic started, I was, you know, I was just, you know, in a panic, uh, you know, about all of it. I had all, you know, the kids in the house and, and, you know, I can go to a, like a dark place. So I'm the one running around the house. I'm the one who dies, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and, and then I had to release The King of Staten Island. So it was weird because I had to promote this movie while I'm in lockdown in the house. So it, it feels strange because on, uh, on one level, I'm having a great experience being around my kids at a time when I think they wouldn't have hung out with me. You know, so we're all connecting and that's beautiful. And I just got to know them much better and got to know them a little bit as adults. You know, Maude was you know, 22, 23 and Iris was 16, 17. And it was a nice moment to, uh, you know, to connect and be real with each other because something was happening. And, it, you know, the parental relationship was adjusting to what it becomes when they move out, which is you're an advisor that they can listen to or not. And then I started getting a little stir crazy and, and I could feel the family getting stir crazy. And so I wrote that movie, The Bubble, and we went to England to shoot it because I thought, we got to get out of here. We're going to go crazy. And I couldn't think of anything except to write about what was happening, which was the pandemic. So I made you know, the choice. I don't know if anyone's going to make a big comedy about this moment, but I'll try. I'll give it a shot. <laughs> you know, so we made this really kind of funny, crazy movie and like some people are split on it and I think that's because it is about like the plague you know I didn't expect everyone to go all in on it because for a lot of people they're like I don't want to talk about it I'm not ready to joke about it I, I would say to people you know they say about jokes like oh too soon and and with the bubble it's like no it's not even too soon it's now yeah it, <laughs> there's no space but it felt right to talk about it and I think the movie came out really well and as it ages, it'll be fun because I don't think there's gonna be another movie. Be, that, be another hundred years until another pandemic movie, that right? that talks about it. And so I, I think it's a great. Oh, you don't uh, think like we had all those Vietnam era movies? Yeah, I don't think it's gonna happen in the comedy vein. You know, I think people are gonna. You know, there'll be something, but it is it is wild to to go. Well, we t we took the shot at, at that moment, and and we weren't really trying to write about you know, disease and the pain of it. We were trying to write about isolation and what you think about and the ways you melt down and, and, and your boss trying to keep you working even though the world is falling apart and trying to keep your ego going and to still believe you're a movie star when like the world doesn't even exist anymore. And that was the, the source of the comedy. And now I look back at as the pandemic is hopefully, you know, in its end stage uh, and think, Wow, I must have been manic as hell that during the pandemic I made a movie, a book, and a documentary, and worked on the Billy Eichner movie Bros, which comes out in the fall. This this uh, romantic comedy that we just did. Oh, I I uh, I I love Billy Eichner. Billy on the street. Oh, he's so funny. The I, movie's I, the, great. Billy on the street uh, is one of the things that helped me during the dark days of the pandemic yeah. too. Watching those hard, funny, hilarious, <laughs> and. And so I thought, whatever I thought I was thinking or doing, I was completely fooling myself. So I couldn't even tell you what the change was or but what, what do you I mean? How took were you from it. I mean, you were creative. I was just in pure workaholism in a way that I thought I wasn't. I thought I was chill. I thought I was just hanging. <laughs> and then suddenly there's like four projects. I'm like, oh, you are a lunatic out of your mind. And, and you only work that hard because you don't want to sit in your own head.
Well, I like that you did a creative project to get the family out of the house and yeah. out of the country. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that it was, and it, and it was a great experience, and we had we had so much fun. But I'm not sure what I took from it. I think that's why I haven't really written stand up yet, because the only thing that really matters to me, I think, generally, is I wish people were just nicer to each other. I wish people tried to take care of each other, and so there's been something about this era where we've seen the the opposite of that. Yeah, you know, even now with like abortion. Uh, you know, being at risk, and people are like, "Oh, I don't want to wear a mask, but I want to control your uterus." Yeah, there's been so much stuff like that that it is a little disheartening to think, yeah, there's a lot of people that are really pretty, pretty rough, pretty nasty. Uh, and I, I, I get that people disagree and they're religious and they, they they look at things differently, but there's there's a lot of cruelty out there uh, on all sides of things. But that's the bummer for me. And I think that was the bummer for George Carlin. Was, wow, we have this great opportunity. We're fucking it up. You know, we're, we're not, you know, we should be the country where we're all happy to wear a mask. We're all happy to do anything that would save any life or make anyone's life easier. Yeah, I think the, the most astounding thing about the last five years is the, the true nature of a lot of people that's been yeah. revealed. The yeah. selfishness and the and yeah. the cruelty. Yeah, I don't brutality. want to be put out. Like people are like cheering that they don't have to wear a mask on a plane. It's not hard to wear a mask <laughs> on a plane. I did it, did it constantly. It it literally was like nothing. Yeah. Who who's celebrating that they don't have to wear the mask on the plane? I mean, if anyone dies or it spreads at all, isn't it worth doing it? Like yeah, the, just the fact that it like they came up with the vaccine like three months later. Yeah. I mean, that's really one of the greatest scientific achievements in human history, yeah. that they figured out the genome yeah. or whatever it is for that vaccine yeah. three months later instead of three years, yeah. 30 years down the road. And that like a huge portion of the population said, yeah, I ain't taking it. Yeah. And <laughs> like, like it's evil. Yeah. Like really, it's like one of the, the best thing that's ever, ever happened. happened. And that, you know what? When you get cancer, you're going to get the chemo. Like, you can't hate medicine. You yeah. can't hate science. You know, you just think maybe you can avoid needing it. But the second you need medicine because you get sick, you're going to take medicine. And so, yeah, I mean, I understand the issues of people are saying, you know, I control what I put in my body. And that's the thing that, you know, comes up. Like, all right, well, are we a society of people trying to make choices to help all of us? Or are we every person for themselves? And, like, for me personally... I, I'm always willing to do the thing to help everybody. You know, I, I'm not going to be the person that's like, yeah, I don't trust that thing. You know, like right. we're all I mean, in like or we're all out. If you're on a sinking ship, wouldn't you help people get on the life yeah. preservers? And I don't know anyone who's had, a had that big a trouble with the vaccine. I know some people are like, oh, I had a hard time. But for the most part, we know thousands of people. We're, we're out there in the world. It's been fine. I mean, and, and there's always exceptions with any shot where like someone... People die. Things happen. But for the most part, how many people die with the shot, without the shot? We need it. So that's made me sad. Just uh, the polarization, the rage, you know, the, you know, Mitch McConnell, mm -hmm. the most important thing to him, and he's on the record, is to make sure Obama gets nothing accomplished. Yeah. You know, like government supposed, for both sides, is supposed to be about what do we do together to make everyone's lives better? Yeah. And the game of it. 
it's how so everything is, is 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 politicized and uh, weaponized like that, and then the, the for the for the pandemic and the vaccine yeah. and mask wearing and all that really was uh, and is mind blowing. Trump's uh, not admitting he got the vaccine for so long. Yeah, what? and he and he worked on getting it invented. Like, yeah, like and I feel like that spun me out too is the, the amount of gaslighting. And there's definitely kind of a liberal side to that because there's gamesmanship everywhere. But the massive gaslighting of, yeah, there's uh, seven cases and it's going to be zero in a couple of weeks when they know what's coming. I think it. I think it's traumatizing. I think we're all traumatized. I think we've all been traumatized, yeah. definitely, through the, uh, through the past few years. Uh, my mother, who I absolutely adore and I'm very mm-hmm. close with, uh, she wouldn't get the vaccine because she... Um, thinks the vaccine was a government conspiracy to kill old people so that they don't have to pay them their social security. Yeah. And was she like that kind of a thinker beforehand or that's a new way of thinking about that's the world? The, you know, it's something that I thought about. Like I remember 10, 15 years ago when I would drive into Austin, Texas to do gigs mm-hmm. on the local radio was this guy, Alex Jones. Yeah. And he was really popular just mm-hmm. in that Austin area. He was just on this local radio station. I remember like tuning in and I would think, wow, this guy's, yeah. he's got some wacky ideas and shit. Uh, and, and I always thought he was a bizarre thing, like a, like a, 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 a freak on a yeah. circus sideshow thing. I never expected that to become our country or my mother. Yeah. And that's like, for me, the most frightening thing about America today is just how so many people are filled with whacked out theories and yeah. conspiracies. Yeah. You know? And it doesn't seem like it's going to get better. No. I feel like, and this is what Carlin talked about, that corporate forces want to keep you distracted with all this while they take billions of dollars and tax break. So they they want you to think, let's not help students and alleviate student loans while we give billions to other industries and rich corporations. That that it, it is on purpose, you, you know, getting everyone fighting. Like if you get everyone to fight about abortion, maybe you could hold on to power, <laughs> right? Democrats on some level are like, we might hold on to Congress because they took away abortion and Republicans are like, we got to rev up our base yeah. to keep us in power. And so these issues aren't resolved based on the issue. They're based on how does it affect voting? You know, they're meant, they're meant to incite people. It's just this constant manufacturing of anger. And I think, you know, we had a war on drugs. Uh, we had a war on terrorism. I think we should have a war on anger now. Yeah. We should try and be eliminating all this anger that everybody's just so pissed off all the time. And now they know that people respond to it. So they go, oh, if you're angry, you stay on Facebook longer. Yeah. You stay on Twitter longer. And so, and we're not making an adjustment as people. So they know I I can just keep tweaking you and you'll stay on. And the longer you stay on, the more ads you see, the more money we make. And now I'm training you to be pissed all day long. And then you get on an airplane and you punch the flight attendant. I mean, that's, that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, let me tell you uh, just real quick. Speaking of my my mother, who I adore, um, I took her to see 
train wreck when it mm -hmm. came out. Mm -hmm. And my mother's a very super, she's yeah. 83 now. So however old she was, what was that, five years ago? I yeah. can't remember. I remember seeing you right after the, the film and I, I remember telling you how impressed I was with LeBron James's acting yeah. for an athlete yeah. that he was, he seemed he was so great. natural. But what I didn't have a chance to tell you in our uh, short, short talk right after I saw you was, I had brought my very religious mother and, um, one of the greatest laughs I've ever had in a movie theater. In the beginning of the film, there's the muscular actor, I forget his name. He's John Cena. John, he's, got, uh, he's got this huge erect cock. <laughs> yeah. and, and the towel. And the towel is hanging from his erect <laughs> cock. And just how uncomfortable I could feel my mother was sitting yeah. next to me. I, I think I, I laughed so hard in the theater <laughs> watching that moment was so, and uh, she, she didn't find that very funny, but, <laughs> but, but that, money, that moment was so yeah. much more funny feeling yeah. how uncomfortable my mother was. <laughs> Secretly, so, she enjoyed it. She probably. Uh, <laughs> she, she's, she's on his Facebook group. Um, and then the other thing, when the pandemic hit, my mother was visiting me. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was 81 at the time when the pandemic hit. So that was like, you were talking about how you, you bonded with your family in that time. I, she was with me for the first four months of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, even when I was a kid and lived at home, my mom worked. I never got all this unadulterated uh, time with her. And, uh, so it was really great. We, we the, the first month, we she didn't leave the you know apartment. I, mean, yeah. I would go out once a week for food. But then the second, third, and fourth months were great. We would go for walks twice a day mm -hmm. in the neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, we would learn about, uh, there's an app called Picture This, mm -hmm. where you can take pictures of um, trees or flowers, and it'll tell you the name and the oh, origin. Wow. I, there's, I never knew there were are magnolia trees all down Beverly. And there's all these exotic trees mm -hmm. and flowers in the neighborhood. We played Scrabble every day and then we watched movies. Mm -hmm. And so I have this older religious mother and I'm trying to you know, stick to mostly comedies and mm -hmm. things like that. And uh, I thought for sure she's gonna love Bridesmaids. <laughs> I think Bridesmaids is one of, I think, one of the greatest comedies ever made. Yeah. And then it's a woman's movie. So like, how can this go wrong with, with yeah. my mom? And, uh, and then the Brazilian steakhouse yeah. Yeah. post, uh, they're, they're trying on the, the dresses and uh, everybody gets diarrhea. Mm -hmm. And uh, wow, my mom really didn't find that funny. Melissa McCarthy shitting in a sink? I mean, come on. You don't, even, you don't even see the shit. Come on, that's that's conservative comedy. That's one of the funniest moments in film history. And, uh, that's funny. I remember seeing Animal House with my mom when I was like 10. And just there was there's a like hand job scene in the car where she's got the plastic yeah. glove on. There's a couple of scenes I was like, oh geez. My I remember going to the theater with my mom to see Life of Brian. Oh wow! And a, a very Christian woman did not find there's some, that. There's some stuff in there. Did not find yeah. that funny. <laughs> So, well, I can't thank you enough yes, for, for being pleasure. on my podcast, uh, Judd. Is, uh, what is the greatest advice you were ever given as a comedian? As a comedian? Well, the best advice I got from a bunch of people is that it would take seven years to figure out how your, your voice on stage. And I think it set me to a certain level of patience that 
just comedy takes a long time. You know, we've done a lot of movies and some of them, like the Billy Eichner movie, they were working on it for four years. Uh, Billy Eichner and Nick Stoller on, on, on the script. So a certain level of patience in, in comedy. And I think, you know, once I think Mike Nichols said, if you come up with one great idea a day, that's a lot. And that helped me because I thought, okay, I just need to generate a lot of ideas. And if every day one of them is really good, I've succeeded. And for some reason that helped me a lot. But the biggest thing I think in comedy is just to write, just get your ass in the chair every day and just let, you know, take a moment to connect with yourself and see what's there and, and ramble and, and then, you know, like you said, you know, like, like George Carlin said, you know, you write and then a day or two later you look at it. He did it stoned when he looked at it, but you don't have to be stoned. But it's good to have a session where you write and you don't censor yourself. You get rid of your critical voice and you just babble. And then another day you put your critical voice back on and you judge it. And you go, oh, this is worthwhile. This is not. This is. And I think that, which someone called the down-up theory... Get it down, and then fix it up. Yeah, and who I think somebody said was it in the Carlin doc or in the book that not enough comedians do that. Uh, Spend yeah. the time yeah. of sitting there and writing, yeah. uh, which is the beauty of um, me not being on the road now. Is I, exactly. I have time to do the good things like that. Uh, what is the best advice you've ever been given as a filmmaker and a storyteller? As a storyteller, I, I mean, there's certain things I, I usually remember. You know, uh, John, his name is John DeGuar. He wrote like The House of Blue Leaves. You know, he was talking about plays and he says, you know, in a play, it's just, you have a character, you put him in a corner and you see how they fight their way out of it. And and that, that to me is enough to go, okay, so someone's going through life and then something happens and then they have to deal with it. And, you know, for me, those types of ideas, I keep it so simple, right? Like you get a person pregnant, what do you do? That's the movie. Uh, and I try to keep it that, that simple. You know, life is about, it is about, like some people, they say, oh, it's like Seinfeld, it's no lessons, you know, but for most people, like, like that's a choice, right? But for most stories, it really is, what is the lesson? A lot of times when I work with people, you know, I'll think, what is your problem? And in a story, what would have to happen to you for you to get it and make a change? I love it. Do you have any words of wisdom or advice for the people of the earth? For the people of the earth? Yeah. You know, at the end of the George Carlin documentary, we do this big montage of current politics with his jokes I over love, it. I love it. was like a fireworks display at the end of the documentary. And uh, that was really important because we spent a month just on that, like five minutes. And then we tell the story of how he passed. And we cut to the end of a show. And at the end of the show, he just says, uh, take care of yourselves, take care of each other. And that always makes me cry because you think he's so dark. But really, that's all he wanted people to know. You know, take care of yourself, take care of each other. I love it. Judd, I love you with all my heart. Love you, buddy. Long may you run, brother. Thanks I didn't for bullshit here. you. Not whatsoever. I meant it. <laughs> I, I was here, and I'll be here again. I love it. <laughs> Tom Rhodes, you're a funny man. Tom Rhodes, you're an international comedian. Tom Rhodes, karate kick, baby, oh yeah. You're a groovy dude You go all around the world 
telling jokes to all of the people. You are an international comedian. You're funny to everybody in every single country in the world. Tom Rhodes, I like you very much. I think you're talented and very wonderful. Tom Rhodes, you're the best guy in the world. I wanna be your friend. You should call me sometime. Here is my phone number: six zero three six four four zero zero four eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom Rhodes, you're an international comedic sensation. Tom Rhodes. I like to listen to your podcast. Tom Rhodes, you're the best man to ever walk on the earth.